0: Welcome to the Truth Wars podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently written his first book, which is titled, What to Do with Worry, Why Playing God Never Works. You can find Olin's book on christianfocus.com and amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. If you got your Bible, open to Galatians chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to spend time, I think for most, maybe all of us, that counts as work time. Studying your word, uh, learning about you, your character, your ways, your wisdom. Lord, would you enrich us this morning? Would you protect us from the evil one? Don't let him snatch the word out of our minds before it's planted deeply in a way that leads to persevering fruitfulness. Would you be making us into the men, uh, the leaders, the laborers that you want us to be? And Lord, may we bear much fruit for your glory, fruit that would remain. And Lord, character fruit of holiness and godliness in our own lives and uh, the fruit of conversions and maturity in those that we lead and minister to. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Galatians chapter 3, this is our third week kind of focusing on legalism, all right? So we said the first week, uh, there's three different broad categories, I think, of legalism. There's the type of legalism that adds to the law, okay? We looked a lot at the Pharisees doing that, taking Old Testament ceremonies that had passed away or man-made applications and treating them like they're still New Testament principles, or they should be. That's a type of legalism. There's another type of legalism that it really is subtracting from the law, which seems counterintuitive at the point, but it's really a sense of right sizing the law, just emphasizing the external aspects of the law and downplaying the internal aspects of the law so that I can feel like I'm doing really good and performing well in front of others and even before God. And then what we're going to look at today, the third thing, would be earning from the law. Anytime you think that you are earning something good or positive from the law, that is a type of legalism. And in a sense, it's the most blatant and well-known type of legalism. And it was part of what was happening in the church at Galatia that Paul is writing against. So we're going to look at today faith. What does faith do? It saves, it secures, it sanctifies. All right, so point one, faith saves. Galatians chapter 3. Paul has been writing uh, this letter that I think Luther and Calvin maybe both referred to as the Magna Carta of Christian freedom, Christian liberty. And really the first two chapters, he does a lot of time on church history. He didn't have much church history then, okay? Early church history, maybe the first 15 to 20 years, and some of his personal testimony. And then really his his didactic teaching, so to speak, starts in chapter 3, verse 1. So let's pick up there. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Okay, so uh, he's obviously frustrated. He's obviously angry. I've said this in here before. In one sense, Galatians was written by Paul when he was younger, more immature, and he was angrier and almost seems like he's in more of a hurry than Romans, which comes later, but, he, but he's, he's mad Now I think he's primarily mad at the false teachers that are leading the church of Galatia away, but he's also angry to some degree, or at least highly concerned for this young church, that it's like they seem like they started the race so well, and now they are, in a sense running off into the bushes of the dishes uh, and, and they're messing it up and so he's, he's rebuking them, okay now, think about this uh, this is an important verse for lots of reasons It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That we know of, there was nobody from the church of Galatia that had been there on Calvary the day that Jesus had been crucified. And certainly, the majority of the church had not been. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about that when you hear the gospel preached with the eyes of your heart, it's as good as if you had seen Jesus crucified. You had a faith sight of him, so to speak. That's how powerful preaching really is when the Holy Spirit blesses it. So he's saying, that happened to you. So there's no excuse for this sin. There's no excuse for this uh, stupidity. And In verse 2, he basically asks a rhetorical question. He's basically saying, listen, uh, how would you become a Christian? How would you get the Holy Spirit? How did you come from death to life? Was it a supernatural miracle performed by the Holy Spirit? Or was it because you were working so hard? Was it because you were so emphasizing obedience in your life and God said, okay, I'll save this guy? Or was it just because you placed your simple faith in Christ? How would you get saved? Okay, that's what he's asking. Now, as I said, this is the most blatant and deadly type of legalism. When somebody thinks, I can be saved by works. I can get into heaven by works. And I don't know about you, but in all my years of ministry, I have never, ever, in any country, in any conversation, really... I think I can say, even in all my kind of reading about different people, I've never come across anybody that would say that they believe they're saved by works alone. But there are tons of people that do think they are saved by grace plus works, right? Well, of course, God is gracious. Of course, you have to believe. Of course, you have to have faith. But you also have to have works. And that is the type of you know, lie that's being rebuked. So, just an illustration. I mean, probably uh, y'all get some of these coupons. You will pay more attention than once you start having kids, and you have a lot of kids, and it's expensive to take them out to eat, you know, and it's like Moe's might give you a coupon that says, kids eat free! And then the fine print says something like, you know, if the parents both buy, you know, a full meal and a drink. So it's not technically free, right? There's a catch. Free would just be, here's your food. Nothing. But this false gospel in a sense says yes it's some grace but it's also a lot of works you got to have both and that's what paul's against that's what god's against faith alone saves second point okay faith alone secures what do i mean by that it keeps us in grace faith saves us it gets us into grace so to speak faith secures it keeps us in grace so verses three and four are you so foolish having begun by the spirit because I think they understood that in the beginning. That's why they became Christians. Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Okay, so you hear you know what he's saying? He's guys, this is crazy to think that you start by faith alone. But then you stay in a state of salvation by faith plus works. You know, he's talking about eternal security here. Listen, there are some people, and I'm going to even refer to a couple of different denominations or types of Christians, and and I'm reluctant to do it, but I'm going to do it. And and why I'm reluctant to do it is because when you, like if I wanted to say, well, all Presbyterians are like this. You have some Presbyterians that are that way, and you have some Presbyterians that are not that way. Does that make sense? But there are some groups of Methodists, there are some types of more charismatics that will teach you're saved by grace alone, 100%. But the way you stay saved is by grace plus works. Now, they may not teach it that forthrightly, but you know that that's what they mean because they believe you can lose your salvation. And that is the logical implication, right? If there's a way for me to lose my salvation, there means that there's a work that I can do that's so bad that's going to get me out of salvation, which the converse of that is, then there must be some works that I have to do, a bare minimum, to stay in salvation. Does that make sense? Okay, and guys, that's a false gospel. Now, it's not quite as bad <laughs> as the false gospel that says you got to be saved by faith plus works in the beginning. But it's a close second. Because, listen, if you believe the only way I stay in is by faith plus works, at some level it's almost like if you really track that down logically, you got to eventually believe in, well, then works had to play some degree of how I got in. because I'm at, Let's just try to follow it through logically. Well, how do you get into this state of salvation? Faith alone. Well, how do you stay in? Faith plus works. Okay, what if you don't do enough good works? Well, you lose your salvation. You did some big, bad, scandalous sin. You lost your salvation. Okay, can I get back in? If so, how do I get back in? Do I get back in by faith alone, or now do I have to do some kind of good works? You understand? It doesn't work logically. It's not logically consistent. Um. John Piper was speaking at Beeson Divinity School, I don't know, probably a decade plus ago. And here's how, I think this is how he started his message. It was so powerful. He said, how do I know, he's talking about himself, he's think about John Piper, right? All that he's done, all the preaching, all the books, all the sacrificial living and giving. He says, how do I know for sure I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and still be a Christian? Right? Because, humanly speaking, I bet we could all tell a story of, I had a friend that seemed like he loved the Lord and was so close, blah, 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 and now he's left the faith. You say, well, that sounds like a contradiction. Well, I'll get there. <laughs> John Piper says, how do I know for sure I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and still be a Christian? He said, only the grace of God. And this is the point he's making. The grace of God is the only thing that ultimately secures me. All right? Now, somebody might take, because listen, And I think we all know this. There are some verses in the Bible that if taken by themselves, alone, out of the context of the rest of Scripture, they do sound like they teach that you can lose your salvation, right? There's a couple in Hebrews. There's other places. And and verse 4 would kind of be one. Did you suffer so many things in vain if if indeed it was in vain? I mean, that, that sounds like he's saying, well, you guys put your faith in Christ, and you were willing to suffer for it and be persecuted, but now you're going to lose your salvation. It's obviously not what it means. And y'all know this, but guys, especially, I I mean, I think in all kind of ministry, but I think especially in student ministry, where probably most of the people that we're dealing with in the Bible Belt are going to have multiple professions of faith. Right? I mean, even my own testimony, I don't know if I ever shared it in here, and I won't take the time to do it. It's like, I'm pretty sure I really became a Christian at age seven. But I didn't really start growing in a, in a continuous way until I was age 15. So maybe I didn't really come to Christ till I was 15. Now, at some level, who cares? I know I'm in the faith now, right? But if I have that struggle, what do you think about the high school kids that y'all are ministering to that grew up at Broward Presbyterian Church and they went to Broward Presbyterian School and they played Broward Presbyterian soccer and every chance they got, somebody was ramming down their throat, you know, in a very loving way. You need to pray, receive Jesus. A lot of them probably prayed, to receive Jesus 17 different times just so they get it out of a whooping, right? You've you got to be able to discern and, and talk about this with people. Listen, the question is never, did you lose your salvation? The question is, did you ever really have it? 1 John chapter two nineteen, John says about apostates, they went out from us. Why? Anybody know? Because what? They were never really of us, right? They were not of us. They went out from us because they were not of us. Matthew chapter 7, which may be one of the most terrifying verses in the Bible, which, again, a, a quick reading might feel like he's talking about people losing their salvation. But then a slow reading, you realize, no, no, he says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Not I used to know you. We used to be close, but now we're not. I never knew you. It was never real, right? And then Reverend Barker, right, just a little bit. Below scripture, this, this phrase is so helpful. Faith that fizzles before the finish was false from the first. True faith perseveres. The perseverance of the saint. If I'm truly a saint, saved by grace, how will I know? You'll persevere to the end. That's how you'll know. Okay. Um, now, this happened, I remember a guy, you know, when I was uh, early on staff, led a guy to Christ, named Patrick, I think, um, took him to a restaurant you know. shared the gospel with him go sit in the car pray in the parking lot trust in Christ and then six months later he goes to a conference where I think John Piper actually was speaking at and later he comes back and says you know I think I really didn't come to Christ until I was at that conference with John Piper and I said how dare you know it was me in the parking lot no, of course not because it's like who cares who cares and who, and who knows we won't know till we get there right but that's, there, there's this perseverance even when my kids were little and they'd all made professions of faith. Or maybe, let, let's say this, there were seasons where maybe the two had made professions of faith, the two older ones and the two younger ones hadn't. And if I was trying to talk to one of the younger ones about coming to Christ, and one of the older ones might ask me, well, Dad, am I, am I really a Christian? You know, and listen, there's a ditch on both sides of that road. This, this can be a hard needle to thread. How do you talk to an elementary school kid about, am I really a Christian? I don't think it's right to say, well, you prayed that prayer, son, 100%, no doubt. Don't you ever question. That's not biblical. But you don't want to be like either. Well, you have been pretty disobedient lately to your mom, so probably not the way you're looking. I mean, you know. So, so here I think is a great way that I really kind of think learned in trying to parent and disciple my kids, but I think it's helped me in ministry is, think about, again, Matthew 7. Jesus talks about there's a narrow gate and a broad gate, but he also talks about there's a narrow way and a broad path. How do you know if you genuinely went through the narrow gate or are you on the narrow path? That's how you know. And how do you know if you went through the broad gate or are you on the broad path? Now, here's the problem. Let's let's double click and go 201 with it. Sometimes a Christian's life, a real, genuine Christian believer, can for a short season look like he's on the broad path, right? And sometimes a non-Christian For a season can look like he's on the narrow path, right? Can we think of any biblical examples of those two things that I just said? Lot. Okay, Lot. No. Good, I'm glad you brought up Lot. That was not who I'm thinking of, but I like that. Was Lot a real believer? Yes. Yes. Okay, how do we know he's a real believer? It says in Hebrews. Okay, Hebrews. The New Testament refers to him as a man of faith, a man of righteousness. But when you read about him in the Old Testament he offered his two daughters, right? To the crowd of like violent homosexual rapists. He's like, don't take, you know, these men I just met, but you can have my daughters. It's like, that dude's wicked. And yet the New Testament is very gracious to him. Okay? So there's an example of genuine believer that for a season he didn't look like a believer. Anybody got an example going the other way? Okay, Simon the magician seems to make a genuine profession of faith and acts, okay? But then he's like, hey, I want to buy this power that you got with the Holy Spirit. How much money will it take, Peter? I got a lot. And Peter says some pretty harsh words to it. Now, so just know that going into ministry and how you talk to people. All right. So when Paul says in verse four, if it was in vain, I think what he's saying is, I don't think it was. I think you guys are genuine. But (laughs) I hope you're just struggling with some confusion right now. I hope you just strayed off the path right now. But if you persevere in this way of life, because that's the answer, right? The other reason that we know that Lot is real, that somewhat his life must have gotten back on path, right? And part of the way is he listened to the angel. It was a very begrudging repentance, but he did listen to the angel and flee the city. Okay Simon, we don't know what happened, but it doesn't seem like there was real genuine repentance in his life. You know, the, cl- the, the most clear example biblically would be Judas, right? I mean, J- Jesus called him the son of Perdition, which, son of damnation. You know, it's like I've had people say, "Are you sure Judas is in hell?" It's like, "Listen, when Jesus is nicknamed for you is the son of damnation." The guys in hell, right? There, there, was, there was no secret repentance after that. He went and hung himself. You know, I mean, it, it, he ran. I mean, he, he is picture perfect of worldly sorrow leads to death, godly sorrow leads to repentance. We're saved by faith, we're secured by faith, no. we're sanctified by faith. We grow up in grace. Now, this is where it's going to get. Gray and nuanced and super important, and here's where so many debates come about. Look at verse 5. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, what does Paul mean by supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you? He probably literally there means works miracles. I mean, this was during the age of the apostles, so you know, whether you're dispensationalist or not or you know continuous or whatever it's like everybody's like oh, there were legit miracles still happening healing re- all that kind of stuff he probably means that kind of stuff was happening at this church but even if he doesn't right so well, there was no apostle there then what's the greatest miracle of all that God does salvation. salvation that one was still happening and praise the Lord everybody agrees that one's still happening today he said why is that still happening why is God still blessing your church and your fellowship with the power of the Holy Spirit? People are getting saved. And again, he asks this kind of rhetorical question. Is it by the works of the law or by hearing faith? Now, this one sounds a little bit harder because, again, in, in the whole theme and the context of what he's saying, he wants them to say, okay, it's by faith. But if that's all that we say, number one, that doesn't seem to fit the tenor of some of the other passages we've looked at in this whole class. I'll explain what I mean in just a second. And that would lead people, potentially, to a type of antinomianism. Okay, I'm justified by faith alone. I'm even sanctified by faith alone? There's nothing i got to do? Why am I even taking this stupid seminary class? Why don't I just go home and take a nap if I'm just going to get sanctified by faith? Right? Because genuine faith produces works. But here's the key. Those works are never meritorious. Okay? Faith-produced works are instruments of receiving grace, but they're never merits to earn grace. Right? Do we understand the difference? Think about uh, Joshua chapter 6. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Remember what God told him? Walk around the city seven times on the seventh day. Blow the trumpets and shout, and the walls will fall down. And that happened, and it was a great victory. Now, what if afterwards the Israelites, do were like, we're so awesome we're so powerful we shouted so well you know it was something about the decibels of our shout it was something about you know our trombone playing or something that's what made those walls fall it's like yeah i think you missed it it was god's supernatural power that made the walls fall now was your shouting and trumpet playing important yes why because god said it was important But you didn't merit anything. You didn't earn anything. That was just the instrument of blessing. Does that make sense? Imagine if one of my kids... This might be too close to a real illustration. It's like, I have given this child life. I have raised this child, right? I have fed them, clothed them, invested in them. They get to be 15, 16. I train them how to drive. I buy them a car. I give them money to get gas. And then, like, on their first day of being 16, you know, they want to exercise their freedom... You know, I say, hey, buddy, if you'll drive down to the gas station a mile away and buy me a Coke, you know, I'd appreciate it, and I'll give you five bucks. Now, he goes and does it, and he comes back and says, give me my five bucks, Dad. I earned it. You know, I'm be like, you didn't earn crap, <laughs> right? Because everything you did was enabled by what I let you do. Does that make sense? But if he comes back and says, hey, Dad, here's your Coke. Would you please give me the five dollars you promised? It's a different conversation, right? You're right. I did promise you $5. I owe you $5, not because you earned it, but because I promised it to you. Guys, check your own heart. Do you relate to God more like I'm earning something by my good works? Or do you relate to more like, man, I haven't earned anything from you but wrath, justice, damnation, hatred, anger, and yet, you're such a gracious God. You have made me these great, mighty promises. And you told me to be bold with them. So, yeah, I'm coming to cash in on these promises. But even in my cashing in and my boldness on your promises, there's a lot of humility. Okay? On my best day, empowered by the Holy Spirit, I can still never earn anything from God but hell. Okay? Because to earn anything, I have to be sinlessly perfect. And even hypothetically, if I could be sinlessly perfect... This is another thing I got from Piper that's so good. He's like, you'd really just be going doubly into debt. Because for you to be sinlessly perfect, even for that one second, how'd you do it? The grace he gave you. So you couldn't say, look at what I produced. It would always be, look at what I did with your investment. Look at what I did with what you gave me. I think for Christians, guys, if we, we ought to take the word earn and merit and deserve, totally out of our vocabulary when we're talking about our relationship with God. Now, those three words are great words in a lot of human relationships, right? If you have a job and they're supposed to pay you minimum wage and they don't give you a check, you say, no, no, I earned it. That's that's great. But when it's you and Jesus, the concept, the categories of earn, deserve, and merit just should not come to play. It's like you can't even think in that thing. It's total enjoyment. Now... Justification is a monergistic act. What, what does that mean? It means one person's acting. It's a monergistic act of free grace. I'm totally passive. And it's instantaneous. Sanctification is a synergistic act of God's free grace. And I'm very active. I'm working. But he's the power source. Okay. So uh, think about being in a rowboat. A rowboat is a good picture of works and legalism. It is all up to my elbow grease. A speedboat, in a sense, would be sanctification by grace alone through faith alone, no works involved. It's like turn on the gas, put the throttle down, and just sit back. You can take a nap, boat will keep going. A good picture of biblical Holy Spirit-filled sanctification is a sailboat. There's a lot. Any of y'all ever been on a sailboat? Right? A lot of work, tacking. You know, moving the sails, all that kind of stuff. I don't even fully understand it. But if the wind's not blowing, you're not going anywhere. Fully dependent on the wind of the Holy Spirit to blow. And yet, my works do play a part. They are instrumental in moving the thing forward. So, think about... Let me just. I just want to go through several verses. okay? And we won't even necessarily look at all of them. We'll just talk about some of them. Think about Luke chapter 15, verses 29 and 31. Uh, parable of the prodigal son. The older brother represents the legalist, right? And he says, You never gave me a young goat, right? I've worked for you all these years. I wonder if that son had come to the father and said, Hey, dad, I love you. You're a great dad. I would like to have a party with my friends. Would you give me the gift of a young goat, young calf, so I could have a party? I wonder how that father would have responded, right? Almost certainly, love to give you that for having a party with your friends. Thank you. Luke chapter 17, verse 10. Y'all just listen to these, okay? So, you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So when you, listen, on your best day, when you've obeyed everything, you never go to God and say, you owe me. You say, I'm an unworthy servant. I'm just doing my duty. You don't owe me anything, right? Matthew Henry, this is, he's talking about Romans chapter 1, verse 17. He said, faith is all in all, both in the beginning and the progress of a Christian life. It is not from faith to works, as if faith put us in a justified state and then works preserved and maintained us, but it is all along from faith to faith. Okay, so I, I never get away from faith. It's never less by faith. Okay, Let's say it this way. Justification is 100% God's work. Zero percent mine. What's sanctification? 100% God's word, 0% mine. Okay, good guess. Is it like 100, 100? It's a hundred hundred? It's a it's like a good marriage, right? If you go into marriage, you get married soon, right? And this aren't you? You're getting married soon? He's getting married soon. Okay, sorry. So here's free marriage counseling (laughs) the subtle thought process of all of our hearts I think to some degree is I'm going to do my part I'm going to do my 50% and I hope she does her 50% and I'll do my 50% and she'll do her 50% and we'll have a great marriage that's recipe for divorce the only way you have a great marriage is if both people are saying I'm going to do 100% I'm going all in on this thing that's how sanctification works. Hundred percent God's work and hundred percent mine. They're interwoven together. Okay, Romans seven eighteen. Do you remember where Paul Paul says, "I don't have the power right in my flesh in myself. I don't have the po- I have the desire to obey. I don't have the ability to obey. The Holy Spirit's got to do it." Romans chapter eight verse thirteen. Put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm putting the things to death, but the Holy Spirit has to help me. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. A lot of times we think of that as a salvation verse. It is, but it's more than that. It's not less than that. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Also, it's like, what's going to grow my faith? What's going to deepen my faith? What's going to increase my faith? Hearing more of the words of Christ. Hearing more about Christ. Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. So once they say it's not about your works, certainly not about ceremonial works, but only faith working through love. Genuine faith always leads to real works, right? Philippians two, twelve and thirteen is maybe maybe the clearest, right? it's about appropriating faith. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're already saved. God's already done the saving work, but you need to work it out, flesh it out into your day-to-day life. And you need to take it serious. Be sober minded. This is not a joke. For it is God who's at work in you to will and to act according to his good works. He's changing my heart, he's changing my desires, he's giving me ability. I've got to flesh it out. Okay? I can do all things, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay? And I do want everybody to look at this one. Everybody flip to Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. This is another really clear one. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see that? I mean, there's two things in this little short sentence where Paul's like, I toil. I struggle. But it's his energy. It's his power working in me. You just got to live in that tension. Live in that dynamic. Samuel Bolton, a Puritan, I love this. He said, it is hard to perform all righteousness and rest in none. You understand what he means by that? It's hard to be a good, obedient, mature Christian who says, I want to be radically serious about the moral law in my life. But when I get to the end of my day and I put my head on my pillow at night, I'm not resting in my law-keeping at all. Because that's not what saves me, that's not what secures me. But I want to keep doing it because it does please and honor the Father. And it is the instrument where the blessing comes. Right? You know, if you came to my house, you say, hey, man, this, this, you know, let's just say you came to my house and for some reason you were out working out or on a long jog or something in my neighborhood and, you know, your car broke down or something. You came to my house, man, I'm in a hurry. I, I need a lot. Uh, I need a ride, and, and actually, can I take a shower at your house? Can I buy this? I know it's weird. I'm sorry. And I said, sure. Come on in. Take a shower at my house. Don't worry about it, you know. Well, I'll pay you. You don't to pay me. You know, free. Free gift. You can have a shower in my house. And then you just kind of stepped into the foyer said, great, give me my shower. Well, if you want to go in the shower, you actually have to go in the bathroom. There's a shower. You have to step into it. You have to close it. Please close the door. You have to turn the water on. Oh, you're saying I got to do something? It's not free? no totally free but there is something you have to do i'm telling you where the shower is it's in there god says you want to get blessed read the bible you're not earning anything you're just putting yourself under the fountainhead where i've promised my grace to come does that make sense again i've referred to this before god is so generous in his heart and so gracious Sometimes he blesses us even in the midst of our hard hearted, persevering, running away sin, right? He just says, I'm going to grab him in grace anyway and yank him back. But I don't need to test God and say, How long can I persevere in hard hearted sin and God keep blessing me? A wise, humble child says, No, no, if daddy says I get blessed when I stand over here, this is where I want to stand. This is what I want to do. This is how I want to obey. William Barclay, he says, The essence of Christianity is not law, but a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. It's dynamic. is not obedience to any law, but love to Jesus Christ. Think about that, right? I mean, you don't want your marriage relationship or your best friend relationship or your family relationship to become a tit for tat, I'm just obeying the rules, I scratch your back, no, you scratch mine. You want it to be a love relationship. But in a good love relationship, there's a lot of serving one another. Not to earn, but just out of love. B.B. Warfield. It is the, this is so great. It is the Holy Spirit's part to keep us in the path, to bring us at length to the goal. But it is we who are to tread every step of the way. Our limbs that grow weary with the labor as we toil over the steep ascent. Holy Spirit's power, my work. Jerry Bridges. Spiritual dis- disciplines are provided for our good, not for our bondage. They are privileges to be used, not duties to be performed. Listen, when that when that gets into your head, I mean, and it sinks in the basement of your heart, game changer. The disciplines of grace is not as much a duty I have to do, it's a privilege I get to do. Right? It's not like, oh crap, I'm in a ministry so i got to wake up and read my Bible for a class today because what if the professor asked me something? I you know. Let me check that box. It's like, you know, I I get the privilege to wake up in the morning and the one and only God of the universe wants to talk to me. That's amazing. And what if I oversleep and I don't get around to having my quiet time until noon? He'll still be there. He's still patient. He won't be angry. It's shocking. It's scandalous. Use the privilege like crazy. It's like God has given us this amazing, like brand new Lamborghini, souped up car and said, drive it as much as you want. we're like, I I don't want to drive the car. I have other things to do, you know? Don't make me drive the car. It's like, no, I'm gonna drive the heck out of that car. I'm gonna drive it as long and as far as you'll let me drive it. I'm gonna enjoy it. I'm gonna explore the benefits of it. You know, John Piper, again, he said, Every gift you ever get in this life is a blood-bought gift. So anytime something good and right happens in my life, I can never say, I earned that. Something bad happens in my life, I can say, I earned that. (laughs) Something good happens, blood-bought gift. Here's maybe the most helpful illustration. Again, wait till you have kids who are about five or six years old, and they say, Hey, Dad, uh, this is maybe the way it'll go. Hey, Mom, will you take me to the store? Because I want to buy Dad a gift. And I want to buy Dad a a really nice gift this year. And they're going to buy you something that you don't really like and you're never going to use, right, because they don't really understand and get your taste. And, oh, by the way, they're going to spend your money to buy you the gift. You don't need the gift. You don't even really want the gift. You're going to love the gift even though you really paid for the gift because it's the heart. Does that make sense? Of that little kid that adores you. That's the way that we need to obey, right? I obey from a position of already having God's love, not from a position of trying to get it and earn it and pull it down. Now, I know this can seem subtle. It can seem gray. And even, I bet, like if if the test, and it's not, but if the test for the final, it's like, Write a term paper that explains this in nuanced detail. I bet all you guys could do it. You might have to pull out a couple books and read and look at your notes and get some quotes, but you can do it. Here's where it gets really hard. When you're out there doing this stuff, reading your Bible, praying, sharing the gospel with students, how do you know if the motive of your heart is right? Is the motive of my heart right now, man, I'm just doing this to honor Jesus. I'm not trying to honor. I'm not trying to earn anything. I'm resting in the finished work of Christ. I'm doing this for the joy of the Lord. Or am I doing this in some kind of subtle legalistic way to prove myself and earn something? Right? now, The reality is, as long as you're on planet Earth, until you see Jesus face to face, it's always going to be a mixed bag if you're in Christ. Right? If even Paul was still struggling with sin 20 years in as a super apostle, so are me and you. So be aware of it when you see it. Repent of it. I mean, guys, I don't know if I've said this in here before, but I mean, one of the things that I struggle with often when I go somewhere to speak, whether it's here at a campus meeting wherever, is like, I do think there's a lot in my heart It's like, God, I want to help people. I want to see people grow up in Christ. I want to see them be more effective ministers. I think there, I think there's some of that in my heart. I think there's also, Lord, I want people to like me. I want people to respect me. I want people to think I'm awesome and I'm smart. Now, how much? I, I hope it's like 99% of the good and only like 1% of the bad, but I'm fearful it's not that way. So oftentimes here's what I'm praying. God, whatever is good and pure motives, would you pour gasoline on that? Would you fan that into flame? Would the good motives grow? And wherever there is evil, wicked, self-centered motives, would you just expose them, smother them, kill them? But a lot of times I don't know. So I'm just Lord, you just you know, do the work of my heart. But, if you're like, but, I, but I wish I had a better picture of my heart. Well, be careful what you ask for because here's how you can really tell. When you feel like you're doing your best to obey the Lord and then you don't get what you want in life, how do you respond? And that could be in a myriad of different ways, right? That could be you got the New Year's conference coming up and you're you said i've had the best semester of life i've shared the gospel more i've prayed more i've fasted more i've loved more i've served more i've done more works of hospitality and i was really begging god i want 10 guys from this fraternity i'm working in to go to new year's conference and only four go how do you respond do you get mad you get hurt or do you say god i think i was faithful you chose not to bless I trust you anyway. I rest in your finished work. That's my ultimate joy, not my ministry fruit. What if you feel like you're a really healthy guy, right? You even come to seminary class and do push- push-ups in the break, right? You're going to the gym. You're doing all your burpees. You eat right. You're eating broccoli every morning for breakfast. I mean, you're doing everything health-wise just right. And then you get some, like, ruptured disc in your back. Or you find out you got cancer when you're in your 30s. How do you respond? Now listen, I'm not saying you have to be like, happy, happy, joy, joy. I always wanted to have cancer early in life. Right? There's, there's, there's so much in the Bible about the right way to grieve and lament and all that. But do you respond more like Job's wife? Which was essentially, hey, we've been serving your socks off God. How dare you do this to us? Curse you. Or do you respond more like Job, at least in the beginning? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That will expose kind of the deep substructure of your heart. Are you obeying out of a mentality of earning, putting confidence in your works, or are you obeying just to please the Lord, and you don't expect any type of merit from it? Okay, so now. I think I've given y'all the illustration before, haven't I, of you're in the cosmic courtroom in the universe. The judge says not guilty, but then he takes his robe off and says, now I want to adopt you into my family, walks you across the street, showing you your new mansion that you're going to live in forever as his adopted son. But then above the mantle, you see these ten rules. What are those? That's my ten house rules. And you realize those are the ten rules that in the courtroom was about to send me to hell forever. I'm like, why are they over here? I I thought we were done with this whole courtroom business. Well, we are. But you still got to obey these rules. What happens if I don't? I don't know. You might get a spanking. Might go to bed without any dinner. There'll be discipline. But I will never take you back across the street to the courthouse and kick you out of my family. I'll never disown you. You're my adopted son. I might chastise you. I'll never condemn you. When that really sinks in, that should never lead to antinomianism, lawlessness, licentiousness. It should always lead to love and obedience. So one last illustration, and this is a real illustration from one of my sons. Uh, so I did a thing with all my boys when they turned kind of 12 or 13. I'd take them on this manhood trip, and, and the idea was do a little bit of Bible study. What does it mean to be a man and all that? But, but really it was kind of like, hey, you're about to become a teenager, and a lot of times dads and teenagers don't get along and i'm wanting to just come out of this period and still like each other and be friends i mean i hope you become a christian you will walk with jesus but a close second is that we can just be friends right and like each other and get along so we're gonna do this manhood trip it's just gonna be me and you mom's not going i've been saving money we're gonna go skiing and pretty much just like we'll do whatever you want we'll sleep late you know and then you know go sit in the hot tub go ski a little bit go eat steak for lunch uh you know at dinner order a big thing of ribs and don't even eat them all you know you can be wasteful we're going to spend money we're going to watch violent rated r you know movies uh that your mom won't like and uh you know no nudity but there's going to be lots of cussing and killing all the kind of things you know high school boy it's going to be me and you friendship trip and so i do this the first time we're staying in this little uh, hotel room close to the ski slopes and y'all all stayed in the hotel room. Y'all know how it works, you know. You don't have to clean up a hotel room. That's one of the advantages of a hotel room, right? You just wake up, you get your bag, and you leave. So the last day of our trip, where we were just waking up, going to the airport and fly home with my son, um, he wakes up before me, which is pretty rare. And uh, I can tell he's kind of doing something around the room. So I'm kind of laying in bed, you know, trying to cock one eye open and kind of look around with him not knowing that I'm awake, see what he's doing. And he's cleaning everything up. Like He's making his bed. He's taking the trash out. And- you know, and I hear the microwave and I wake up, you know, and he said, Hey dad, I want you to know, I woke up early. I've already cleaned the room. I cleaned, you know, I, I made you some oatmeal and I, I started packing everything and I just want you to know, dad, I just, I just want to thank you for this trip. Now in that moment, as best I can understand at a human level, there was no sense of I'm going to butter up my dad here. So maybe he'll buy me a Snickers bar at the airport. He wasn't trying to earn anything. There was just this genuine overflow of, my dad just spent a couple of days and a couple thousand dollars on me. And it was awesome. And I'm trying to find a way to say thank you. Now, again, in some sense, understand the way I'm saying this, the actual works that he did to say thank you didn't really mean that much to me, right? Because like, buddy, we don't even have to take the trash out in the hotel room. So you kind of wasted your effort you think I told him that? Heck no. Be- because my heart was flooded with joy and his affection for me, his appreciation for me. So when I'm out there out doing all these works for the Lord, never think like, God sure is lucky to have me on his team. Look at all this. I'm like hey, We're making God's mission harder because we're on his team. It's just a privilege that daddy likes to take his kids to work with him. And we should be so in love with him and what he's done for us on the cross that we say, I literally want to spend every waking moment, every breath, every thought, whatever I eat, whatever I drink, whatever I do, to give him glory, to magnify, to praise him. And when you're living out of of that kind of overflow, life will be joyful for you, even in the pain, even in the hardship, And it will be fruitful for you in your own character and in ministry, even when you don't see it. I promise the Lord will be working behind the scenes. Let's pray. God, you are shockingly, scandalously, lavishly gracious to us. We don't deserve your love, your kindness, your mercy. In fact, Lord, we merit hell and wrath and damnation over and over and over again. And yet you stay patient, yet you stay kind, yet you stay gentle, yet you stay merciful, yet you keep us on your team, yet you let us go to work with you and be involved in the mission. It's it's too good to be true, and yet it is. Thank you smite all the arrogance and self-righteousness out of our hearts forever. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.